turning uh, finally in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. So all the way back in our Bibles to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, uh, chapter number 38. Let's pick up where we left off a couple of Sundays ago at verse number one. And we're in the story, the, the big story here of Joseph. Uh, he has been uh, sold into uh, slavery. He's now down in Egypt. And the story picks up after his brothers have sold him uh, to, a, uh, to a group of traveling uh, merchants who then sold him into the house of, uh, of a servant of the Pharaoh. Genesis 38 begins picking up and saying, it happened at that time. That's sort of the biblical way of saying, uh, like, like a story begins, uh, once upon a time. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Uh, Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and went, remained in his father, or her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signets and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the, man, uh, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Loved ones and all of God's people say to these wonderful words, Amen. We've all heard that uh, proverbial uh, conundrum. Uh, Can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Now, to us, it seems like a conundrum. It seems like an impossibility, but it's not for God. You see, we know that God is all-powerful, and he can create whatever he desires. He's almighty. And because he's all-powerful, he can move whatever he wants to move. So the answer to that question is God can create and God can move whatever he desires. My question this morning to you, somewhat like that, is this, though. Uh, Is there a mess that you can create, that you can make, that God cannot clean up? Is there a mess that you can create that God cannot clean up? Uh, Kids, I know you've all made messes, maybe uh, in the garage or maybe in uh, your bedroom, maybe in the living room, the playroom, maybe outside somewhere, uh, maybe at someone else's house. You've probably made a big mess, haven't you? And perhaps you've even thought something like this. There's no way I'm going to be able to clean up my mess before my mom or my dad gets home. There's no way. It's just too big of a mess. I've made a mess that I cannot clean up. This morning, our story here in the Bible is all about a mess uh, that some people made. It's not a messy room. Uh, It's not just a mess of toys and clothes or maybe some dust on the shelves. It's a mess of life. It's a mess that we read about amongst the holy family, Judah, one of the patriarchs of the Israelites, who made a mess of his life. And as we think about that mess that he made here in Genesis chapter 38, is there a mess God can't clean up. Don't forget what we saw a couple, couple of uh, weeks ago in Genesis 34. Uh, we read and uh, we thought about Genesis 34, all the, the dysfunctionality in the Holy Family, all the sexual sin uh, that we saw in the very family that God had chosen 
to bring forth a Savior to the world. And we said, a part of what we said, a part of what we thought about that Sunday a few weeks ago, chapter 34, uh, was that that's, that's a part of the word of God. God doesn't record these words because he condones the actions here. No, this is because these are the people that he chose to save. He saves sinners. God saves sinners. And God uses sinners like Judah to bring to us, thousands of years later, a Savior named Jesus. And so we can turn to passages like Genesis 34 and even here, Genesis chapter 38, and not condoning the sins. Of course, these are sins. But we can say God has a purpose. But the power of the Holy Spirit, this was recorded in the story to teach us something of who God is. And so there's a reason why Genesis 38 is here. Again, uh, it would have been very easy for us this morning to skip over chapter 38 like we could have chap- uh, skipped over chapter 34. But it's here for us. It might make us feel uncomfortable uh, this morning. Our kids are here, but uh, here it is. This is, this is the, the gory graphic details uh, of the family of God, that the kinds of people that God saves. And so may the Holy Spirit open our eyes and our minds to, to think this morning, is there a mess that God cannot clean up? Notice the mess here. Notice the mess, the mess that Judah creates. He's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob. These are the patriarchs. And there are 12 sons of Jacob, Judah being prominent amongst them. He's the, he's the, uh, the, uh, the son whose family, whose tribe, is going eventually to become the tribe of the kings of Israel, the, the, the tribe of David. Uh, this is the tribe from which then the Savior comes, the Messiah comes, Jesus comes. But all the way back in the beginning, notice Judah, the mess that he creates. Uh, the mess he makes of his life is, is so messy that we can hardly fathom that this was a patriarch. Now you might also be asking this those of us who've been reading through the story together. Well, what does Genesis 38 have to do with the story of Joseph? Uh, Genesis 37 began the story of Joseph, and, and Joseph was sold into slavery down into Egypt, and we got the foreshadowing of the fact that the Israelites were going to go down there, uh, as God told Abraham, for 400 years, and eventually be brought up out in the Exodus. So what does this story have to do with the story of Joseph? I'll explain it in its a little more fully in just a moment, but notice how the story is connected with the story before it. It has an intimate connection to it. It happened at that time. What time? The time that Joseph was sold into slavery. And Judah, who was there in that plot, he's the, he was the one who said, well, let's not put him to death. Let's, let's make some profit out of it. And they sold him for those shekels of silver. At the same time, then, as Joseph was sold into the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian, the story assumes a connection. He went down from his brothers. And so it picks up where we left off in chapter 37. Now notice the mess. Notice the mess. This this mess of Judah uh, takes place in three little scenes. So notice here, uh, there's, there's three little quick scenes, verses 2 through 11. Uh, verses 2 through 11 is this first scene, this messy scene. Uh, there's Judah, who while talking with a Canaanite man, 
uh, sees a Canaanite woman, Shua, and has three sons with her. And don't overlook the verbs. I've been pointing out these verbs have been used multiple times throughout our story of Genesis. Don't forget the verbs. Notice in verse number two. Uh, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, uh, a Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, etc., etc. Where else have we read those verbs connected together with a man taking a woman or, or even a woman taking something? In the garden. She, Eve, saw the fruit that was good to the eyes and pleasant and so forth, and she took. And we saw it throughout Genesis chapter 6, the the sons of men, the, daughter, uh, uh, the, the, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, we've seen it with other uh, uh, figures in the story as well. When, peop, when, the, when, the, when the Bible links together these verbs of seeing and then taking, you can pretty much be assured that nothing good is going to happen. When someone sees and desires and then out of power or here lust takes, we know that there's nothing good. There's going to be a mess. And so he sees, as he's there talking with uh, this uh, Adulamite, whose name was Hira, he sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, he took, went into her, she conceived, and bore a son. The mess begins. Of course, he's emulating his first mother, Eve, here. But also notice here that he, as a member of God's covenant family, he's taking to himself a woman, we presume to be his wife, uh, one who's outside of the holy family. He takes a Canaanite, notice. Later on in the law of God, in the Old Testament, uh, this was going to become explicitly forbidden. That Israelites could not, not just that they should not, but could not, marry outside of the faith, outside of the people of God. But here, notice, it's already an assumed sin. It's already a concern for the people of God. That's why Abraham, we saw way back when in chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant back to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. Not that they were inherently more holy, his family back home, than the Canaanites, but at least there was a better chance that they were going to be more amenable, more open to the true God. Don't marry a Canaanite, God said. Isaac sent Jacob to the same place, back to the fathers, uh, their father's uh, uh, homeland, not to marry a Canaanite, but to take uh, one from their extended family, Genesis 28. And so God has made it throughout his word from the beginning, uh, here in the patriarchs, the Old Testament laws, and the New Testament. Perfectly clear in his words, uh, the kind of person, a believer in the true God, is to marry what kind of person is that? What kind of a person is a believer to marry? A believer, right? A believer. In fact, Paul uses an image here uh, uh, later on in the, in, in the New Testament. Paul describes what it's like for a believer to be married, to take to himself or herself an unbeliever in marriage. 
It's like two ox that are put together uh, on a plow, and one wants to go plow to the right, and one wants to go plow to the left. What does Paul call that? Being unequally yoked, right? Being unequally yoked. And so, here's Judah. He's unequally yoked. Don't forget, this is, this is the son of Jacob, the tribe of David, the kings, the tribe from which someone really important comes. Jesus. And he, he's making this big mess. That's the first little scene. Okay, we see his being unequally yoked. Seeing, taking, right? Just like Eve and like others. The mess deepens as Judah's firstborn son, Ur, gets married to Tamar. Uh, but then he dies because he was wicked. Is that any surprise? I mean, Judah, Judah has just done something. He's made a mess. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And, and the Lord takes the life of his firstborn son. So he tells his next son, Onan, to take the responsibility of, uh, of, of the next brother in line to provide heirs for his brother's house, uh, to... Uh, to be used with Tamar to conceive a son to carry on Ur's family name. Now again, later on in the Old Testament law, uh, this becomes what's called leveret marriage, or brother-in-law marriage. It becomes a law in the Old Testament. But all the way back here, in the early ages of God's redemptive plan, it's a cultural expectation that that, a, that a, a line of brothers, if the firstborn dies, the next in line takes his brother's wife to keep that line, that name, that family uh, going. Yet Onan too was wicked, and the Lord put him to death. Because of this, Judah feared the death of his youngest son. Right? He's starting to get the point. My first son was wicked, God put him to death. My second son was wicked, God put him to death. So he doesn't want to take the third son, his last remaining son, and have him marry Tamar because he is afraid that he's going to be put to death too. And so he tells her, remain in your father's house as a widow. And she dresses as a widow would dress. So that's the first, the, the, the first scene. The mess that Judah has made. The second scene, notice in verses 12 through 19. So eventually Judah's wife dies. He grieves as, uh, as a widower would, uh, and he's comforted. Uh, this is over some period of time, no doubt. Uh, and he goes out to, to shear his flock of sheep. So he goes out to work, we might say. Uh, he goes out to perform the, the normal duties of his day. Uh, because Judah's son Shelah was old enough to marry Tamar, but Judah was too afraid to give him to her, he, he takes matters into his own hands. So we, we infer here, and, uh, as, as the story goes, that he was old enough to, to marry her, but he was afraid, of course, because he saw the writing on the wall, right? That first son dies, second son dies, he wants to keep that third son alive. So she knows this, and so she takes off her widow's clothes, that is, Tamar does covered herself so she wouldn't be noticed and sat at the entrance of the city of Anaim. But our eyes, our focus shouldn't be on Tamar here in the dressing room, but upon Judah. 
The story is going to show us, again, another, in a nice way, a mess that he makes, or another sin he commits. The focus is upon him, not upon her. I've been saying, and I'll say it again, this is, this is no, this is no uh, uh, you know, artistic depiction of a saint with a halo over his head. This Judah. It's bad enough, as the story describes, that he had sex with his daughter-in-law. But it's the circumstances in which he does this that makes it worse, even more damning. How did Tamar dress? She takes off her widow's clothes and she puts on something else. What does she put on? Puts on a veil. Why did she put on a veil? What does the story say? Because that's the way that prostitutes dressed. What kind of a prostitute? More specific than just a prostitute, a cult prostitute. Why does she dress that way? Again, the focus is not on her. The focus is on Judah, but she does this for a particular reason, right? It shows his sin. She dresses this particular way, the story implies, because she knew that that's the kind of woman that was attractive to him. That's how she would have get his attention, by dressing like a cult prostitute. Don't forget, this is the holy, the holy family, right? This is the tribe of the kings, the tribe of David, the line of Jesus. He, she dresses that way because she knew something was in his heart that would lead him. No, she has, she, her motive is, of course, to, find, to have a son, to have a family, to, to provide and protect. Uh, in this ancient world, that's how, uh, that's how widows and that's how women would be provided for and protected was through marriage, through childbearing. That's how they were protected and provided for. She's been left in her father's house as a widow when there's a, uh, when there's an, uh, uh, an, uh, there, there's a man who's old enough and she's already had two others, but she can't get him. So she takes matters into her own hands and she does what she does to attract him because she knows that's precisely what would attract Judah to her. And notice the text says in verses 15 and 16, it was because he thought she was a prostitute that he says to her, come, let me come in to you. Because he thought she was a prostitute that he says what he says. Notice even worse in verse 21, he thought she was a cult prostitute. He asked the men of the place, the servant, where's the cult prostitute? Well, how does, the, how does that servant know to go find this woman that was not merely a prostitute, but a cult prostitute? Because Judah told him. That's how the servant goes and knows specifically what kind of prostitute to find. Because she was in service, or at least dressed in service, to the god Baal. She was dressed as a cult prostitute, literally a sacred woman, the text says, a sacred woman. 
And a part of the Canaanite religion of Baal uh, involved sex with ritual prostitutes in service to Baal. In service to Baal. Because they believed that their crops and so forth, the rain was literally his semen all over the ground, and that's what gave life to the world, and that's what provided uh, for their lives. And so they would have ritual sex with ritual prostitutes in service to Baal in honor of Baal. Judah not only marries a Canaanite, but here he is not wanting to marry this woman that he thinks is this anonymous prostitute, but he wants to have sex with a prostitute of Baal. That's how low, that's how low it gets in the story. That's how messy the story gets, the family of God here. The third scene is in verses 20 to 30. So Judah planned to pay for his illicit action. Uh, we might laugh at this, you know, with a goat, right? It doesn't really seem right, but that's, that's a costly uh, animal, and it's, it gives life and so forth. Uh, so he's going to give, he's going to pay with, uh, with, his, with his flock, with his livestock, with a, with a goat. And so, he, uh, ha- and so he sends one uh, to her after the fact. Uh, he, he has to give a pledge. He doesn't bring the goat with him. He's not carrying the goat around with him in, in, the, in the city square here, but uh, he gives a pledge. You know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pay uh, for this, uh, for this uh, ritual sex. And so he gives uh, a signet, uh, a little ring that, uh, that uh, a man would have that would have a little symbol on it, letter or something, that would mark out uh, that something was his property, a cord uh, and a staff. Uh, particularly that, that, that signet ring that would have marked him out, uh, would have been made out of metal or stone, some kind of an insignia to mark a flock, uh, to mark territory, to authenticate uh, your word was true, and, and so forth, in contracts. So he sends his friend the Adulamite with his goat. Uh, and the Adulamite comes to the town and asks for the cult prostitute, but he's told, there, there is no cult prostitute here. What are you talking about? And so Judah and the Adulamite Hira, they, they just forget about it, right? I mean, what happened in Vegas stayed in Vegas, right? Three months later, he hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And we're told, here the story says that she's pregnant by immorality. And then we're told Judah's righteous reply. Bring her out. Let's burn her. Right? That's, this is the line of Judah. Bring her out because she's committed immorality and we're going to burn her to death for her immorality. She's, she shamed the family name. When she arrives, she revealed that uh, to whomever various articles belonged, that was the one who got her pregnant. She holds up the signet, the cord, the staff, And Judah replies that she is more righteous than I, because I did not give her my son, Shelah. Such is the mess that the sexual sins of Judah brought. So it's a big mess, isn't it? What do we make of all this mess? Again, the story's here. Uh, describes, it's not uh, prescribing for us 
the lifestyle that we're to follow, but it describes what Judah, at least, did. Uh, and we read a story like this, and it's important to, uh, to, to keep in mind that, uh, that the stories of the saints, the patriarchs, the holy men and holy women of old, uh, in, all their, uh, in all their goodness and all their sinfulness, especially their sinfulness, reminds us. But for the grace of God, there go I. Except for the grace of God, I have the same proclivity in my heart as these sinful men and women in the Bible, here especially with Judah. The same sinful potential uh, lives in your heart too. Do you believe that? And so, yes, we have to be hard on Judah because that's a way for us to be hard on ourselves. The law of God is the law of God, and it says what it says about our sins. And so here's Judah in all his sin. He's intermarrying with the Canaanites. Here are the sins of his sons. Here is his sin that reveals his own heart. It reveals the sinfulness of the human race. But I thought God chose holy people, righteous people. I thought these were patriarchs. And I thought God loved those who helped themselves. You thought wrong. Does God help those who help themselves? No. Does God save those who are self-righteous in themselves? And you stand up in their righteousness and say to God, I don't need you, I need myself. No. God saves sinners. That's the message of the Bible. God saves sinners. And here's a sinner. And the amazing thing is, God uses him. And also, we read a text like this, and, you know, we, we, it's obvious for us, we live in a very highly sexualized society. Sexual identity... It's everything, right, these days. And anything goes. It's sacred today. You can be what you want. You can do what you want with whomever you want, with whatever you want, whenever you want, as much as you want. And that's a sacred right. There are no repercussions for that, we're told. And we read a story like this, and we see again the the sins of the fathers. And we're reminded again that the same sin that coursed through the veins of Judah is also within us. But what do we say? What do we say in, a, in our time, in our place? Uh, so much sexual sin, so much sexual mess, so much sexual dysfunctionality, uh, in our, not just in the world out there, but in our, in our church, in our own lives, our own families, amongst our friends. What do we say to all that? St. Augustine says in his book, The City of God, something that you're probably going to be surprised that he said. He says this, this is a, uh, a quote, He should hate the fault, but love the man. We know that phrase uh, in a more uh, sort of evangelical, uh, uh, as a more evangelical saying, uh, that we're to love the sinner and hate the sin. 
well, that's just a bunch of evangelicals. You know, we, we don't believe that stuff. Well, that's what St. Augustine said. That we're to love sinners. Despise the sin. Hate the sin. Reject the sin, but love the sinner. That's what God did. That's what God did. He chose to use Judah. I mean, if, if Jesus didn't love the sinner and he hated the sin as much as he hated the sinner, there would be, you wouldn't be here today. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Hate the fault, Augustine said. Love the man. Love the person. So we live in a, a, very, a, a very chaotic time of, of, of uh, human sexuality, morals and ethics. Love the sinner, hate the sin. So there's a big mess here. There's a big mess. What's God going to do about it? How does God, or can God, to go back to my little opening illustration, can God clean up a mess? Is there a mess so big, so great, so messy, that God cannot clean it up? Kids, how do you clean up that mess in your room? Mom says, you know, mom and dad maybe go out and they say, hey, we're going to be back in a couple of hours, maybe the babysitter, maybe you're at grandma's house. Uh, and, and you know the time is, is uh, the time and the clock is ticking down. How do you clean up a big mess? Well, you put it all back where it belongs, don't you? Try to pretend like it never was there in the first place, right? Look like there never was a mess. That's, that's what we do. That's what we do. Again, the story is not about a messy room, but about the sins of Judah and how he made his life like a mess. And here's the great thing about the Bible. Here's the great thing about the story, that, the stories that God has given to us. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there, and lots of Christians give off false information and, and uh, false ideas, and they, they don't live consistently with all these things. But here's what God does. Here's what God says. The wonderful thing about the Bible, about, about the God that is revealed in the Bible is that God doesn't wait for us to clean up our messy lives. He does it for us. That's what we see here. One writer said this, only divine grace could dare to take up these sorry elements of human life and use them for for its own blessed purpose. There's nothing more marvelous than the power and possibilities of grace. Grace forgives Grace uplifts. Grace transmutes. Grace transforms. Grace uses for its own glory. So how can God clean up a mess like this? How can God turn this situation of Judah and Tamar to the good of that holy family and the good of the world? God's purpose has been stated very clearly after the fall of Adam and Eve. In the garden, he said that there was going to be a seed who was going to come. There's going to be a son who would come, and he would crush the serpent's head, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's been the, that's been the driving force behind all these stories. That seed promise of one to come to bring salvation, that's been what all these stories are about. So how is God going to bring that seed of the woman 
to crush the serpent's head. First of all, Judah's sin is used to illustrate the Savior's distance from sin. This is the first way that God cleans up the mess. Judah's sin is used to illustrate the Savior's distance from sin. The story of Judah, chapter 38 of Genesis, is included in the Bible in this particular place in the story of Genesis, the story of Joseph, because it contrasts Joseph, the one who will save Israel from death, with Judah here in this context. Chapter 37, Joseph was already being distanced and distinguished from his brothers. He provided an honest report of his brothers to his father. He dreamt of ruling over them. He was unjustly thrown into a pit. Though innocent, was sold into slavery, we saw last Sunday, or uh, two Sundays ago. And at the head of that plot was Judah, who thought it was beneficial to gain financially from this situation. Don't put the brother to death, let's sell him into slavery. Chapter 38 demonstrates just how wicked a brother Judah was. Chapter 38 stands in stark contrast to chapter 39. We'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday. Joseph's sexual temptation by the wife of Potiphar. Joseph demonstrated his righteousness by running from the wife of Potiphar while Judah showed his unrighteousness running headlong into cult prostitution. Or at least what he thought it was. And this is prophetic of our Lord's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus' holiness. In the story, God is already preaching the gospel. In the story of Judah, in the story of Joseph, to point forward to a Savior to come who actually would be in his thoughts, words, and deeds, holy, distinct from sin, obedient to the laws of God. As I mentioned, all of us are prone to those sins of Judah, The same stuff, the same sinful stuff runs through us too. And that's why we need a gospel, a Savior, that says to us that the Savior is one who has done what you and I have failed to do. A Savior who, when you and I think lustful, sinful thoughts, only thought holy thoughts. When you and I speak sinful words, a Savior who only spoke words that were truth. A Savior who, as the psalm says, doesn't turn to the right or to the left, but walks according to the law of God. When you and I veer so far off from the path of life to the left to the right, one who walked perfectly according to God's laws, thoughts, words, and deeds. And so here is a story that, uh, the story of Judah illustrating to us the coming Savior's distance from sin. Yes, he comes from the line of Judah, does Jesus, but he's unlike Judah. He's better than Judah. He's greater than Judah. Why? Because he's the Son of God in human flesh. He's holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's the Savior that we need. Judah's not. Jesus is. The second way God cleans up the mess 
is that Judah's sin is used to illustrate the Savior's closeness to sin. What I mean is this. Not only do we need a Savior who is distant and distinct and different from us, but we need one who's close to us, who's like us. How, how close is Jesus to us in his humanity? 100%, right? Is there anything about you being a human being that Jesus is not? The only difference between him and us in terms of his humanity would be the, the fact that we're sinners and he's not, right? He's tempted like us in every single point, yet he's without sin, right? He's made like us. Body, soul, mind, will, affections, all that it is to be a human being. He's like us 100%, except for sin. Except for sin. And so the story then, again, illustrates that because here's the line of the kings, the line of David, the line of the Messiah, the line of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who's like us in every single point, yet, yet he comes without sin. And that's, that's illustrated for us in a very... Interesting way, if you turn your Bible quickly here, all the way to the beginning uh, of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Notice uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Notice who's mentioned here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, notice that Judah is singled out. Why? Because he's the lion of the kings. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And there are only a few women mentioned in this genealogy, and interestingly, one of them is Tamar. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. The focus of the sin in our story is on Judah. Interestingly, Tamar is one of the matriarchs of the faith. We don't see her that way, but she is. But here is our Savior who is so close to us, so like us, that he actually comes from this line of Judah, and he comes through this particular line of Judah and Tamar's union, yet without sin. We need a Savior who's different than us and is also like us, who's divine but also human, who's holy but who's also one who's able to be tempted, one who is the the God who has made all things out of nothing with just a word, but also the God in human flesh, suffering, being tempted, struggling like us, overcoming unlike us, so that we can come to God through him, our Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says this, What's been broken can be mended. The glory of grace is its power to heal broken hearts and mend broken lives. The gospel comes to hearts broken by sin and despairing of redemption and tells of pardon, peace, and purity in the blessed healing and transforming influence of divine mercy, love, and grace. And so here's a story of the messiness of sin, but a story of the wonder of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to you today and he speaks to sinners like you and me. No matter what our sins are, they can be the sins of the story here, they can be any other sin. And he says that he alone can forgive, he alone can wash, he alone can cleanse us, he alone can make us new. 
He alone receives sinners. You may not be a Christian. You may think, well, a lot of Christians are very hypocritical. We are. We're sinners. We struggle with how to receive sinners and welcome sinners and be friends of sinners and love the sinner, hate the sin. But God doesn't. But God doesn't. Come to Jesus, the perfect Savior, the perfect one who loves you, who loves sinners. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that forgives, the gospel that heals, the gospel that renews, the gospel that is our Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, perfect God and perfect man. And through him we can come to you, Heavenly Father, with confidence this morning and joy. Build up our faith as believers, Lord. Enable us to love sinners. Enable us, Lord, to live more holy lives than we, are, than, than we already do. Draw to yourself, Lord, those who need this healing, who need to find a Savior. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us now as we come to the Lord's Supper to, to find uh, in this tangible way all the things that we've heard, that God loves sinners. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.